Good to be with you, church. My name is Dave, one of the pastors here. And as we open up God's Word, I thought it'd be fun to start with a little game today. And that requires some audience participation, okay? So I'm just going to uh, get myself situated here. I'm just going to put up a name of a type of sports arena up on the screen. And you tell me what kind of sport would get played there, okay? So uh, let me give you an easy one to start. So example, here's, here's number one. A rink hockey gets played in a rink. Very good. You get the idea, right? Okay, let's try another one. Here we go. Yes, baseball gets played on the diamond, right? Except the Yankees last night, maybe not doing so well with that. So there's still hope, right? Is there hope? I don't know. Okay, let's try the the next one. Here we go. Football gets played on the gridiron. They're getting a little harder, getting a little more challenging, okay? How about this next one right here? Very good. Golf gets played on the links. Some of you guys, you're missing out here. Okay, let's, let's try to just participate with me. Here we go. Next one. Soccer gets played on the pitch. Very good. Some of you are learning about this. Soccer gets played on a pitch. How about this next one right here? And the answer is? <laughs> Sumo wrestling. Thank you. Very good. Right here prize for the lady in front. All right, that's kind of PG-13. Let's get that picture off the screen there. The next one right here. That's right. Mixed martial arts or ultimate fighting. Very good. Gets played in the octagon. Excellent. And how about uh, this next slide? What if Christianity was a sport? What would the arena be where Christianity gets played out? I submit to you this morning the answer to that question is it gets played out in our relationships with one another. Christianity gets primarily played out in our relationships with one another. Do you believe that? Do you really believe that? Because a lot of Christians don't. In fact, George Barna tells us statistically that only one out of every five self-identified Christians, that's 21%, believe that spiritual maturity requires a vital connection to a community of faith. Furthermore, he notes that 40% of Americans gave the same reason for why they don't go to church. Simply put, they said, quote, I find God somewhere else, unquote. As Frank Witcher once said, there are many things you can successfully do alone, but growing as a Christian is not one of them. And here's kind of where we get this off track in the church, especially here in America. We teach that you can be saved from your sins. And that's true. Absolutely that's true. I believe that. But friends, the Bible and the story of salvation is so much bigger than that. It's not really about one individual or one person drawing attention to himself or herself. It's about this body that's being saved together. Often we don't treat our faith like that, though. We, do, we treat our faith a little bit like how you play blackjack. Now, I know nobody in here at this Baptist church has ever played blackjack, so let me just inform you. You sit at a table, and you're around a group of other people playing this game. But you don't really have any significant relationship with the other people around the table. You don't even care about what's going on with the other people around the table. All you care about is your relationship with the dealer. You've got this private relationship going on with the dealer. So you care about this person 
and the dealer. You don't really care about their relationship with the dealer. or their, it's not, You guys are not really in sync with each other. And sometimes we treat our faith like that. We come to church, we're together, and it's all kind of like, well, how's your relationship with the dealer? But it's not really the way Christianity is supposed to operate according to the Old Testament and the New Testament. I used to play basketball. Once a year they would have this fundraiser. We would all come out and have a foul shoot-a-thon. And each of us would come and we'd all have to shoot 500 foul shots to raise money for the sports program. Now imagine if, if a, a, you know, a kid came to that and said, listen, coach, I love this foul shoot-a-thon. This is what I want to do all the time. I mean, I'm getting really good here. It's just me in the basket. I'm like 90% on my foul shooting. Uh, you know, forget practice, forget the games. Let's just do this. The coach might say, I think you misunderstand what we're doing here. This is a basketball team. We play together. We want to compete. We want to go to the state, the state finals. We're, we're together playing this game. It's not about you and your individual foul shot percentage. It's a group thing. You see, God did not create us for a private, personal relationship with himself. <gasps> I can't believe I just said that. Did the pastor just say that? Did somebody write that down? No, God created you for a personal relationship with himself as experienced in relationship with other believers in the body of Christ. That's what the passage is about today. Would you turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4? What you're going to see here is a wonderful solution to the prevailing problem of what I call Christian isolationism or private Christianity. We're going to see key characteristics that make up the ingredients for a real and authentic community. And the question that Paul is really answering here in the back of your mind, maybe you want to keep in mind that question, is what does a loving community look like? What does a loving community look like? If you know me, you know this is a personal ministry passion of my life. I actually recently co-authored a book about this called Me, Myself, and God, Overcoming Christian Isolationism. Uh, we poured our hearts into this book. It is, it is the cry of my heart to create this kind of authentic community uh, here at Millington. Uh, if you don't have a copy of that, I actually will give you one. Uh, there's some in the back. Please take that. That's my personal gift to you. Uh, if I could do anything to create that kind of community here, I will do that. This is a passion of mine. Now let's take a look at what the Apostle Paul says in the Word of God. If you're ready, say amen. amen. Verse 17. So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they're full of greed. Notice the description of the way things were for us and are currently for those who are outside of the faith, those who are unbelievers. He says they live a life of futility. Now, what does it mean to live a life of futility? Futility means to continue to try to grasp for something that you simply cannot get using those means. And so for the Gentiles outside of the faith, the unbelievers, the height of futility 
is thinking that they can get true soul satisfaction through pursuing earthly pleasures. It's futile. This is why, as a result, he says they're full of sensuality and indulgence and impurity and greed. Because those things on this earth never satisfy. So as a result, we want more and more and more and more. It never works. In the end, it's futility. And he says they're darkened in their understanding. They live in this darkened world where the Spirit's light is not shining in. They're focused on the here and the now, on the material world, this life. And they are that way, not because they are deficient intellectually. They are that way because, he says, of the hardness of their hearts. There's a stubbornness there. There's a resistance there. As Paul says elsewhere in Romans chapter 1, although they knew God, they neither honored him as God, but they suppressed the truth in unrighteousness, Professing to be wise, they became fools. See, the Scripture tells us the fool says in his heart there is no God. Now, the fool in the Bible is not an intellectual charge. It's a moral charge. The fool is the one who says, I don't need God in my life. I'm going to do things my way. And so here we are. They've exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for the things of this earth And when I study this, and I look at this, and I preach this, I tend to think, wow, I am so glad I am not like this anymore. As if I'm beyond this. But if I'm honest, this tendency still lives in me. And I can still even see myself as being self-indulgent and self-centered in this way. And I'm so grieved by that. That's why the Apostle Paul says in verse 20 to 21, that, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. And we say, oh, thank you, God. Oh, praise my soul, the King of heaven. To his feet thy tribute bring, ransomed, healed, redeemed forgiven who like thee his praise to sing amen Amen. so there's this new way we've been washed there's an old way of thinking and being and behaving and we've been invited though into a new way of thinking and behaving and being and that's what he means when he talks about this in verse 22 you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Now, for some reason, the NIV translation, along with most other English translations, use this terminology of new self here. And for some reason, they go with a very individualistic translation of this term. I think that's unfortunate because really... It's the same exact term we used when Pastor Bob preached at the end of Ephesians chapter 2 when he describes that new creation of God that he calls the new humanity. It's not really an individual thing. It's a group thing. 
You see, you can't put on the new man, you can't put on the new self, you can't put on the new humanity when you're locked in a closet somewhere with yourself by yourself. The only place you can put on the new humanity is when you're together with us. It's a group thing. Sometimes because we're Americans, we tend to read the Bible in a very individualistic way. Part of the reason is because in English, uh, we have the same word for you, singular, as is the case for the word you, plural. In English, we just say you. And it kind of looks the same, but the Bible didn't have that problem. There's two different words for you, singular, and you, plural. And we have to be careful about which one the Bible's using. Let me just give you just an example to see what I'm saying. Look in uh, the book of Matthew, chapter 5. You are the light of the world. Let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. In this verse, it does not say that you individually are the light of the world, like all these little tiny lights. It's saying you collectively, the people of God, are the light of the world that they might see your collective good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Let me just give you another example. Take a look at this verse. The Apostle Paul says elsewhere, Do you not know that you are a temple of God? and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Again, this verse is not really teaching that we are all little miniature temples. It's saying that you all together, your entire community, the body, is a temple in which God's Spirit dwells. God dwells in our presence when we are together. One more example. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You can't really fulfill this passage alone, can you? Can anybody say, yeah, hey, I'm a nation? No, no, it's you together are a nation. You together are a people. You together are a, a royal priesthood. See, Christianity is not so much about you as much as it is about us. And this completely flies in the face of the idea that says, hey, I've got my own personal relationship with God. I don't really need the church. I love Jesus. I've got my Bible over here, but I hate the church. We can't say that. You're going against everything Jesus asks us to do. We're designed to do this together. Now let's go back to that Ephesians chapter 4 passage. He says, to put on the new self, or like I like to say, the new humanity. And the, the metaphor he uses here to describe this is the metaphor of clothing. If this were sports, it would be like a sports jersey. Like we used to play for this one team, but now we don't play for that team anymore. We've been drafted onto a new team. And so Paul says, take your old jersey off and put on your new jersey. You've got a new team now. And when he says put off and put on, what he means there is put on the characteristics of this new humanity. You don't play for that old team anymore. There's an old mindset, an old perspective. Uh, there's old characteristics. We don't do that here. There's an old attitude that needs to be put away and a new attitude that needs to be put on. Here's another way to think about it. I brought for you this morning my own clothes hamper today. So here's like some dirty clothes. And if you're like me, if you have a family, you know that 
laundry can kind of get out of control in your house. And it can really pile up. Like, it's really crazy. In fact, look at how Julie shrunk my favorite shirt, you know. So <laughs> it's really, you know, kind of a difficult chore. But sometimes old clothes, I don't know if this is a guy thing or not, but old clothes are hard for me to just discard. There's certain sentimental memories attached to them. Like, you know, I used to manage this pizza restaurant called CC's Pizza, and I've had this shirt for over 20 years, and and I just can't throw it away. I mean, now I paint in it and stuff, but for some reason I keep this thing around. And then there was that time that, that, that I... I once in my life like ran a 5K, so they gave me a shirt, so I felt like I needed to keep that just to prove that I once did that in my life. And then, then there's, this, there's this, this polo shirt that I got from the, the Bible college I went to. It's definitely seen better days, but I just can't, I can't quite bring myself to, to discard this old you know, shirt. So I have this drawer. You guys, does anybody have like a bottom drawer where you've got some of this kind of stuff? I'm not the only one, right? And then I've got these jeans that I used to fix the car. And uh, man, I mean, they've, they've seen some, I mean, it's really, I mean, that's really, really, some of that stuff. Paul says, what are you doing wearing that old stuff? You, you got a new set of clothes that you can put on now. Why would you wear that? That's the image I want you to think about. What specifically does he mean by new clothes? What kind of characteristics does he give us? Well, let me just mention five. Take a look at verse 25. Start with this. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. So here's the first characteristic on this new team. We require you here to tell us the truth, to put off falsehood. Don't lie to us. Don't pretend. Don't be fake. Don't put on a show. On this new team, we require you to be real. And sincere. So the first characteristic I'll put up on the screen is simply that. Be honest and authentic. Tell us the truth. Here's the difficulty. Whatever it is you want to be known for is what you seek to portray to others. But then when you don't measure up to that, there's this gap. And to the extent that there's a gap, To that same extent, you pretend, and you mislead, and you begin to manage your image. The problem with managing your image is you become an imaginary person, and you might think you're being accepted, but you know deep down that's not really the real me that's being accepted, and you never really feel accepted. There's this huge disconnect between who we want to portray ourselves to be and who we actually are. Recently, I learned that when it comes to Facebook, the number one adjective used by wives to describe their husbands is the word awesome. On Facebook, we are awesome. (laughs) On Facebook. But then Google says the number one question wives ask about their husbands is how do I know if my husband's cheating? So you see there's this disconnect between who we want to portray ourselves to be and then who we actually are. And that's not good. So Paul says, be honest and authentic. 
It's not a small issue. Let me give you a statistic. According to George Barna, only one-third of us, one-third of professing Christians, claim to have confessed our sins verbally to another brother or sister at some point during the last quarter. That's just a command in the Bible we're dismissing. About 15 years ago, uh, Julie and I got together with five other Christian couples, and we decided together we wanted to do life together. And so we went on this spiritual journey, and we would gather, and sometimes we would break up with the, the men and the women, and sometimes we would be together, and we would grow each week to be more and more honest with one another. I remember this one exercise we did called writing yourself a screw tape letter. You know C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters, where he has a, a demon trying to tempt a human being. The assignment was, write yourself a screwtape letter as if you were the demon assigned to you. How would you tempt you? And we read each other our letters. And I wrote some of the things in there that I'm really not that proud of. And I was kind of scared to share my screwtape letter. But then when I did, I realized rather than having that isolate me further, there was this power in the confession. There was this breaking of the chain that happened simply by being real and authentic about it. And contrary to what I thought, that such disclosure would isolate me further and cause rejection, I found that through that experience, it led me to a deeper level of connectedness, intimacy, love, grace, and maturity than I had known before. People cannot relate to you if you appear to be perfect. It's very hard for me to be honest about my flaws when you don't present any. Just be real in the new community. Can I just make an obvious observation? You can't do that by yourself. You can't put on the new humanity when you're with yourself by yourself. The only place you can put on the new humanity is when you're with us. And when you're with us, be honest and authentic. He goes on in verse 26 and gives us a second characteristic. He says this, And in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. I know this is a total surprise to you, maybe not. When you're around us, when you're around the new humanity, you might get angry with us. I know, shocking. Even here in the community of God, we're still people fallen in sin. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say, I can guarantee you from time to time we are going to make you upset. But when we do this, God says, deal with your anger appropriately, which is the second characteristic. Don't let it explode. Don't let it simmer. Don't stuff it down. Don't sit and stew. Don't hold a grudge. Just deal with your anger appropriately. Don't let the sun go down on it. Now, I used to read that verse, and being a married man, I used to think this meant if I'm married and my, husband, my, my, my wife and I do not have a husband, my wife and I are having an argument, husbands and wives having an argument, then that means you can't go to bed until your argument is settled. And the later we would stay up, the more tired and irritable we would get, and we weren't making any traction with this verse. But then I realized he doesn't say, don't let the sun go down on your argument. He says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. There's a difference there. 
It has to do with my attitude, my posture, not simmering. Otherwise, producing bitterness. That's not good, because bitterness, someone once said, is like the acid which eats its own container. Or someone else once said, holding bitterness is like drinking poison, hoping the other guy will die. It's not good. So Paul says, deal with your anger appropriately. Otherwise, let's go back to that verse. He says you're going to give the devil a foothold. That word foothold is the Greek word tapos. That's where we get our word topography. It's the idea that the enemy would have territory in your life from which they can launch an attack. The enemy can launch an attack on you. Not good. Now, obvious point. This presupposes that you're close enough to other believers that you're going to offend one another. And then go through this process of dealing with it appropriately and going through the process of reconciliation, right? It's a wonderful cycle. Welcome to the new humanity. You can't put on the new humanity when you're with yourself. By yourself, the only place you can put it on is when you're with us. And when you're with us, deal with your anger appropriately. Number three, look at verse 28. And he who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with his own hands that he may have something to share with those in need. Okay, who here steals stuff? Okay, let's just move on to the next verse. I guess we're we're good with that. (laughs) Be generous with our needs. Be hardworking so that you might be able to give toward others. That's the third characteristic of the new humanity. Just be generous to the needs of others. We're very, very needy. Instead of taking, now take on the posture of giving. Everyone has a part to play. Everyone has a special gift that they can give to the group as we all work together. A few years ago, I remember seeing this fascinating documentary uh, called The March of the Penguins. Anybody seen that in here? Isn't that interesting? They, they track these penguins in Antarctica, these, these emperor penguins. And the movie is just fascinating. And I remember watching this film, and at one point during the penguins' journey, uh, there's this horrible storm that comes, and the wind is just blowing like a like a hundred mile an hour wind, and it's eighty degrees below zero, and these penguins have this system where when that happens they huddle together in a group, and it's so cold around the perimeter that they systematically take turns of being around the perimeter, and I thought these are penguins, like. Stupid little penguins. I, and here they are. They've, they're selfless enough. They're smart enough to figure out how to have teamwork and work together and huddle and serve and take turns all for the good of the group. We have such trouble, though, as human beings with this principle. Especially when it comes to church. I mean, there's the old saying that 20% of the people do 80% of the work, right? You've heard the joke, a church is like a football game. You've got 22 guys that are exhausted on the field, surrounded by 22,000 people in desperate need of exercise. <laughs> a small portion doing the work. That's oftentimes the way it is in the church. That should not be the case. So we must be generous. Can I point out the obvious? You can't put on the new humanity when you're with yourself by yourself. The only place you can put it on is when you're with us. And when you're with us, be generous toward our needs. Let's take a look at verse 29. 
He goes on to say, and do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for the building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. The word old, unwholesome there is the word for corruption. It means putrid, and it's often used to describe rotting garbage. Reminds me of this one piece of clothing that I have right over here. You see, I used to coach basketball, and, and, and I had this one sentimental shirt, and, and sometimes, you know, Coach Dave had to get out on the court and play with the, the, the kids, and, and, and I would walk in the house, and, and one time Julie was like, oh my, Dave, what is that smell? I'm like, what? What? She gets a little closer. It's you. What is that thing? Take that thing off. Get rid of that thing. It's smelly. But I keep it. The word for unwholesome talk here is the idea of a smelly substance that's just pretty ripe and and terrible. That's what we are like to those around us when we're crass with our words and careless with our words and rude. That's what we're like when we gossip or slander. We give off this fragrance that's not good. That's the old way. So in the new humanity... Let me give you this principle. Communicate in such a way that would build others up. Communicate to build each other up. There's a place for constructive criticism. Don't get me wrong. The truth in love, grace and truth, and I'm all about that. But also remember to be encouraging towards those around you. Can I point out the obvious? You can't do that when you're with yourself, by yourself. The only place you can put on the new humanity is when you're with us and when you're with us communicate in such a way that would build us up then he goes on to say in verse 30 and do not grieve the holy spirit of god with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption how do we grieve the holy spirit of god as a father if you want to see me struggle to deal with my emotions appropriately, go ahead and do or say something hurtful to one of my daughters. It is not a good feeling. When someone hurts our kids, it grieves us. Friends, the Bible teaches that God is our heavenly Father. How do you think he feels when we mistreat one of his children? He's deeply grieved. So we have to leave that stuff behind. Verse 31, get rid of all bitterness and rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice, the conglomeration of relationship-destroying behaviors. Leave bitterness outside, leave rage outside, leave brawling and inappropriate displays of slander and anger outside. Why? Because it will destroy the new humanity. Now, I think I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, ah, the problem with all of this, Pastor Dave, is that you and I both realize that real human relationships, even in the church, real human relationships evidence failure to obey every single one of those commands we see today. Real human relationships are broken and fallen and messy and hurtful. In fact, I promise you, if you enter into real relationships with us, we will not always be authentic and honest with you. In fact, sometimes we will lie to you and deceive you. 
If you enter into real relationships with us, I promise you that we will not always give generously to your needs. Sometimes we will hoard what we have inappropriately and not share. I promise you, if you enter into real relationships with us, we will not always communicate in ways that build you up. And sometimes we will even communicate in ways that that tear you down. And there we see the problem. While it is impossible to live the Christian life alone, it is very, very difficult to live the Christian life together as well. And we feel the pain of the lyrics of that old U2 song, I can't live with or without you. What do you do with that, Pastor Dave? What do I do when someone sins against me, when there's a sleight of hand, when they twist that thorn in my side? What do I do when they hurt me? What do I do when I enter into the new, the new humanity, the new community, and they don't exhibit these kind of characteristics? Instead, they exhibit the exact opposite. You got an answer for that? Here's what God says to do. Please, please, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ Jesus, God forgave you. When we wrong you, forgive us as God has forgiven you. Because to enter into the new community, this side of the resurrection, is to be a people who are waiting and longing for that which we shall be one day. But today, we are not yet perfect. And today, we will all fail at times. Today, sometimes we will wear that old clothing. And when we do, please be gracious and forgiving. Which leads us to the final characteristic. If you're in the new humanity, practice forgiveness. Practice forgiveness. And if you forgive from the heart, I have a promise for you. The world will look at you and your behavior and they will think you are absolutely nuts, out of your mind, crazy to forgive us. What, you're going you're gonna to pursue them after they hurt you? After they lied to you? After they stole from you? You're, you're going you're gonna to actually forgive them? You're going to pursue reconciliation with them? I mean, they stabbed you in the back. They broke their word. They lied to you. Are you absolutely crazy? Who does that? Who in the world pursues someone who has wronged them like that? Someone I know. And in pursuing reconciliation, we now bring glory to God in a way that would not otherwise be possible. The ironic thing about this last characteristic is that's how we actually imitate God the best. Which is why I hate this chapter break at the end of chapter 4. The passage goes on in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, and concludes like this. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. We live in a day and age where people are so quick to ditch one another and say, I'm done with you. 
But God says, I want the new humanity to be different. I want my church to be different. There is something about your reconciliation and unity that you will pursue that glorifies me. This is why we want to do our best to form the new humanity here. There's a greater purpose. There's a greater goal. And the goal is that God wants us, his people, to come together and glorify him. This is why John says in 1 John 4.12, no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us. This is God's vision for our church, to be a community willing to pursue real, authentic, reconciled relationships with one another, to show off the ministry of the reconciliation of Jesus Christ. So let's just put those five characteristics back on the screen. Take a look very plainly and very closely and just ask yourself, how am I doing with these characteristics? Do I really want this? Is there any area of your life where you've been wearing some old clothes and it's time to put on the new clothes of the new humanity? Now let me be very clear. This is not moralism. It is the gospel and the gospel alone that gives you power to do this. It is because we are rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ that we can live like this. The reason why we can be honest is because we know God already knows everything about us and still loves us. The reason why we can deal with our anger appropriately is because we have seen a glimpse of God who is slow to anger and very patient with us. The reason why I can be generous is because I trust God to provide all of my needs. After all, he who did not spare his own son, how will he not also with him give us all things? The reason why I can learn to communicate, to build up with my words, is because God, through his word, has brought us the most comforting message we have ever seen. And the reason why I have power to forgive is because I have experienced that forgiveness myself. And in so doing we will reflect and glorify our Lord. So how does this apply to us today? For some of us, this is really new. Maybe you just want to learn more. Maybe you want to pick up one of those books in the Welcome Center and just dive into this topic. For others of you, maybe you're really not connected and God is calling you to a new level of connection. Maybe you'd want to join one of our small groups here and grow deeper. For some of us, we're already somewhat connected and God is calling you to take it to another level, to share some things that perhaps you haven't shared up until now. Or maybe for some of us, you want to select one person in our body that you trust and invite them into a covenant relationship with you together for the purpose of growth and struggling together towards maturity. Whatever it is, refuse to live the Christian life in isolation. Decide to be known. Put on the new humanity. Could you imagine a church that really got this? Could you, could you just imagine a church that exhibited those five characteristics? Let's be that church. Let me give you a tangible way to remember the sermon this week. Because I've been told people forget sermons. I'm devastated by that, but I've been told. <laughs> so here's my way of remembering. Every time you get up in the morning and get ready this week, whether that's for 
work or just getting ready for the day, and you put on your outfit. Put on the new humanity. Jacket, shoes, belt. Put on the new humanity. Shirt, shoes, laces, tie. Put on the new humanity. Amen?